Good day and welcome to our weekly podcast at KPC. We are absolutely delighted that you are able to join us once again as we continue to reflect on God's Word and its meaning for us today as followers and disciples of the way. Our passage today is a very familiar piece of scripture from Matthew 28 coined as the Great Commission and our theme is remind me why are we here again? Maybe you've felt like that during different seasons in your life where you've come to a standstill and just realize not entirely sure why I've ventured on this path or why I'm here and in what direction I'm actually headed. So hopefully today, after our chat and our discussion, you'll be re-invited to journey with the Lord. That you'll realize that we've all been called to go. There's this imperative in one of these five verses that commands us, instructs us, implores us to go, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach. That's primarily why we are here, why we've been created to worship and adore God and in obedience follow in his footsteps. It's also Trinity Sunday and if you have a hard time grasping the Holy Trinity you're in good company. In fact the term isn't mentioned in the Bible but implied over the course of the Bible and over something like four centuries many theological debates and church assemblies Later, it was accepted that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three persons in one. One commentary says it like so. From Augustine to Aquinas, these are two church fathers. From Keene to Merton, they are a bit more modern. All of the great souls who have probed this great mystery of all. C.S. Lewis speaks with down-to-earth logic about the Trinity. In his book Beyond Personality, he writes, All sorts of people are fond of repeating that God is love, but the words have no meaning unless God is at least two persons. If God was only a single person, then before the world was made, he was not love. The mutual love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit clearly transcends time, and stands as testament to our triune God. Three in one, one in three. Creator, Redeemer, Abider. Through the prism of faith, the beauty is sublime. The symmetry is exquisite. In faith, the toughest question becomes our greatest comfort. In faith, our response to the biggest mystery is not bewilderment, but it is adoration it is adoration so let us pause for a few moments and then we will prepare ourselves to receive from God's Word Lord thank you that you are here with us wherever this individual is listening from whether they are doing the dishes or they are cleaning the house taking the dog for a walk, or simply stargazing. We thank you that amidst 
our lives, the busyness of our lives, or the mundaneness of our lives, you are forevermore the same, and you choose to be here with us. Bless your holy word as it speaks to us now, and in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Matthew twenty-eight sixteen to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. And thanks be to God for this reading from His Holy Word. I remember when we had to pull up a job description, a remit for our youth and community development work. It, it was quite difficult because in, in many ways, sorry, you're trying to pinpoint what someone should be what their main objectives and goals should be. And it's quite hard because I often, when I read job descriptions, in ministry at least, it feels like this individual needs to be Jesus Christ himself to be able to fulfill all these rules and um, this job descriptions. And the remit is just, yeah, it's out of this world. So, what you're actually doing is you're painting an unrealistic picture of what you would want someone to be. But obviously, you know, if someone ticks a few boxes, you're more than happy. And um, again, as we know, uh, James does tick a lot of these boxes, those of you who've had the privilege of meeting him. But for a moment, as I reflected on that, I thought of another remit. Our remit as Christians, as followers of the way. I wonder if you think of your own remit as a Christian, your own job description. What would what would be one of the top five priorities? Maybe you think number one should love God and neighbor itself. Lover of all things light and salty, giver of grace and forgiveness, must evangelize whenever opportunity arises. Maybe you feel strongly about that. Maybe you feel strongly about servitude. Serve without hesitation, even enemy and foe. Friends, interestingly, when we read this passage, the last chapter in verse in, in Matthew 28, coined as the Great Commission, we don't see much of any of the above, though it is implied. What we do get is a fourfold approach to and for the calling of the Kirk. It simply says, Go. Make disciples, baptize, and teach. Now we'll discuss these guidelines for the church shortly, but do remember them for now. Go, make disciples, baptize, and teach. To fully grasp this missio day, this mission of God for His people, we need to take a step back. We need to take a step back. The who is important, or the why. As that dead talk says, whom does Jesus 
sinned. He sends the 11. Why is that significant? Well, we know that 12, a biblical number, represents all that is complete and whole. It's symbolizing something that is perfect. But 11 symbolizes something that is not. It serves as a reminder of Judas's betrayal. He's not with them anymore. And God chooses then to use an odd number, 11. An odd number of fickle and frail, flawed friends to take on board the most important of missions sharing the good news of forgiveness and salvation. One commentator, Bruner, says, The number 11 limps. The church that Jesus sends into this world is fallible, 11-ish imperfect. Yet Jesus uses exactly such a church to do His perfect work. Jesus takes this imperfect number and gives it a perfect vocation that encourages us because we too limp, but the Christ who began a good work with the eleven disciples is continuing it with us, with you and me. Now that is a great comfort, to know God uses all who limp, like you and me. The Great Commission is for all, subject, us, we, and object of the mission is also all encompassing. More on this a little bit later. Now, apart from the incompleteness, this number 11, they meet in a region, a province called Galilee, a Gentile, non-Jewish area. Three days walk north of Jerusalem. It's about a hundred miles on foot where they receive their calling. The very place Jesus chose to start his own ministry, in fact, did most of his ministry. Home, as we know, to many Gentiles. Where they'll start, the disciples, their own mission to the world, far from the hub, the nucleus, which is Jerusalem. They do go in response to the two Marys' invitation. And they congregate where you'd expect to have an encounter with God on a mountain. Think, think of the Bible. Think of the Word and what happens on mountains. Think of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Think of Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. The Transfiguration. Think of Elijah and the cleft of a rock. God passing by. Mountains are synonymous with revelation and divine presence. So what we have here, again, odd number 11. Odd people being sent. Every day, odd bulls. And then an odd place of, gal of gathering, which is Galilee, a mountain. We don't even know what mountain it is. The passage doesn't say. And then thirdly, an odd reaction to seeing Jesus. What do you mean? Remember, in the Gospel of Matthew, up to this point, no one has seen the resurrected Jesus except for the two Marys. The rest of the disciples had to trust their testimony, or at least try to. Verse 17 says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Fascinating that those who saw Jesus, who spent years by his side, bearing witness to all the accounts of miracles and healings and teachings, still experience a sense of doubt. What they doubted, we're not sure, 
but there was uncertainty and there was a hint of skepticism. Could be, as one commentary said, that this is the first time they see Jesus since they fled at his arrest in the garden. Could be guilt. The Greek word for doubt, this is important, doesn't have the same meaning that we associate with doubt. In this Greek word, destazo, it carries a sense of standing in two places at the same time or being of two minds. Destazo has its root in this, which means twice or two ways. Destazo can mean effectively to hesitate. There is not a single hint that doubt is about unbelief. It might be better associated with a common anxiety response of freezing. The definition of the word refers to wavering or hesitation. So the disciples worshipped, right? And then they froze. Worship and doubt, worship and froze. One commentary helps us. It says doubt is not the opposite of faith in Matthew, but an inevitable part of the life of faith and discipleship. When Peter walks on water, for example, he becomes frightened when he notices the strong wind and begins to sink. After saving him from drowning, Jesus says to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's doubt does not prevent Jesus from saving him, nor does it preclude Peter from being recognized as a leader among the disciples, even the rock upon which Jesus will build his church. It's as if, in some way, friends, faith and doubt together characterizes discipleship. And to be honest, I often doubt things myself. I doubt whether God wants to continue using me in the role of a minister. When things are tough, when I feel like I've let other people down or myself down, when I read of declining numbers within the church, I keep asking myself and doubting whether there is a future for us. Whether we have purpose and meaning. And then I read passages like that and it just kind of puts all my worry at ease. Because how does Jesus respond to their doubt? He doesn't really seem too concerned, does he? He doesn't say, come on now, just believe. How hard can it be? I'm standing right here. No. Jesus does not rebuke the disciples. He understands their doubt, but speaks to their faith. That's crucial. He understands their doubt, but speaks to their faith. He understands their frailty, but calls them to carry on His work. How wonderful. Jesus chose to do His work through the original, less than perfect disciples. So we can be confident that He can do the same through us, through you, and through me. He gives the disciples a driving purpose, helping them to leap out of the state of hesitation and wavering. Go, make disciples, baptize and teach. What we have here is almost as remarkable as what we don't have. Did you notice there's no word of sin or salvation or 
atonement or all these other Christianese words. He doesn't tell them, win the world, preach, evangelize. He says, go, make disciples. That word go is an imperative. It's an imperative. Now, we don't have a lot of time today to focus and go into depth about discipleship. But it is the bedrock of the church and the church movement through the ages. I will say this. Primary discipleship is about a relationship vertically with God, but also horizontally with other people. It's about accountability, being held to account and holding someone else to account. That's how we grow. That's how we mature as Christians, allowing yourself to be vulnerable by allowing others to speak truth into your life, your actions, your deeds, and then also vice versa, speaking truth into others based on biblical principles. That's why something like a life group can be so vibrant, a Bible study group. Or when we have tea afterwards and we discuss this passage and mm, this is quite challenging and reflecting on God's word together. That's what it's about. Spending time together in God's word. So what does that word mean to you? Discipleship. I wonder if someone disciples you. I wonder if you disciple someone else. Friends, you don't need to know all there is to know. Think of the disciples. They were unschooled. Many of them were fishermen. It's as easy as inviting someone for a cuppa. And just asking simple questions and listening. I think for me personally, the formula of discipleship lies within friendship. Think of how Jesus spent time with his disciples. The disciples will grow into this role that Jesus gives them. The remit is simple. The job description is straightforward. Imperative. Go. And then subordinate to that is, it's almost like a, a pyramid, if you will. Make disciples, baptize, and teach. We must, friends, be satisfied with small progress when it comes to these things. And trust God to finish the work. Commands. Yes. God commands us to be proactive. That's what it means to go. It's not enough to sit back and enjoy your relationship with God. It's always been about a collective approach. Even since Judaism, it was about a people coming together to worship Yahweh. So who is sent? We know this. All. To whom? Now this is striking. Notice how many times in these five Simple verses, the word all appears. All authority has been given to Jesus. He commands them to make disciples of all nations, to teach them all, everything he has commanded them, and reassures them that he is with them always. These sweeping alls indicate how the resurrection has transformed the world. Now it is time for the disciples to act in response to this changed reality. Friends, the resurrection changed everything. It means that Jesus' Lordship is now absolute, extending over everything. We are sent, we, all of us, are sent to all, all nations, because He is the Lord of all. 
gave us all we need for the task because of His presence. And so this book, this gospel, it ends in the same way it started. With God's presence. Emmanuel. God with us in the form of the baby. This is Jesus' gift to his disciples across time and space. God's promise is the solution for human wavering by his Holy Spirit. And even amidst our doubts and our fears and our shortcomings, the Holy Spirit can remind us that it's okay. It's okay to at times doubt ourselves with the notion and the knowledge and the conviction that God is always with us, that He will never leave nor forsake us. Jesus commissions us amidst these fears, our folly. Even as those with little faith, we can do His work in the world. And this is because He has promised to be with us to the very end of the age. And I want to leave you with that. I want to send you out today to go, to make disciples, to build friendship with all nations, with everyone, people you meet. That's why we are called to be friendly and hospitable, to share the fruit of the Spirit. Because that's how we pull people, not towards ourselves, but towards God. And so the remit is simple. It's to go. It's to make disciples. And in the process, if the opportunity arises, to baptize and then to continue teaching as someone belongs to the greater body. May this be true for you and in the week to come. May you go. Make disciples. Wherever you roam. Amen. And may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen.